How do we deal with the sins we transgress? How does our history influence our present and future? In this poem, Cain and Maples, the villain's villanelle, Dan Orenstein visits Cain as he relives the horror of killing his own brother. Welcome to episode 15 of Exegesis, featuring the work of Dan Orenstein. Cain and Maples, the villain's villanelle, by Dan Ornstein. The horror, brother's blood on stones and trees, Though Cain's one thought is clearing evidence, he turns away with timeless cruelty. Their God laments that he has made him free to cry, I'm not his keeper, his defense. The horror, brother's blood on stones and trees. Our God appalled, for he can plainly see Cain doesn't hear the plaint at his offense and turns away with timeless cruelty. From earth your brother's blood cries out to me. From this first murder will you learn to sense the horror, brother's blood on stones and trees? Now in the fall, the ruddy maple trees recall Cain's mark and our inheritance. We turn away with timeless cruelty. The crimson leaves, they wave Cain's tail at me, first crime and all its brutal consequence. The horror, brother's blood on stones and trees, we turn away with timeless cruelty. Published in December of 2014, Dan Ornstein is the rabbi at Congregation Ohab Shalom, a writer and a day school Judaic studies teacher. He lives with his family in Albany, New York, and is the author of Cain v. Abel, a Jewish courtroom drama. Dan blogs at the Times of Israel and airs monthly essays at WAMC.org, Northeast Public Radio. Let's hear from him now. Where were you when you wrote this? In what mindset or physical place or what kind of prompted this poem? That's a really interesting question. I was thinking about that the other day. It was the fall of, I don't know, uh, I published this at the at Jewish Literary Journal, I think, in 2015. Maybe it was the fall of 2014. Um, I was in the middle of a class, um, like a poetry writing class that I was taking at uh, at our local uh, Jewish community center. And I happened to be driving down um, a street here in Albany, New York. And for the first time, I really looked at, um, you know, at the, the Japanese maple trees, which are all over this part of the Northeast and which are just absolutely beautiful. And they're really red. I mean, dark, dark red. And um, I had been thinking about this midrash in Masechet Sanhedrin, in Tractate Sanhedrin of the of the Talmud, that uh, tries to understand why it is that um, you know that God says to Cain, "Kol um, like you know why it is that God says in the plural, "Your brother's blood cry out to me." And the Talmud, in trying to understand that weird anomalous use of the word blood. Of Damim, uh, Deme in Hebrew, says that, um, you know, Cain brutally murdered Abel and his blood was scattered all over the stones and the trees. So as I'm riding or walking down one of these streets and looking at these, um, these maple trees, these Japanese maples that I happen to love, um, it suddenly occurred to me that, um, you know, sort of here's the kind of the modern representation of, uh, as it were, you know, metaphorically, poetically, of Abel's blood, you know, the blood of the victim splashed all over the stones and the trees. Here are the trees that, you know, contain, 
you know, sort of, you know, his blood splashed all over them. Do you think the anthrop- anthropomorphization of the blood, do you think that there were multiple voices, maybe in the sense of also generations or maybe in response to something that was said, that there's sort of more to it, not only the amount, but also a more, a more metaphorical kind of cry out? Yeah. So you mean you're talking about that particular Hebrew word, yeah. Janine, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to you know in the in the plural, as opposed to the singular of blood, as opposed to blood. I mean, again, I'm so um, you know I'm so influenced by some of the midrashic material on this that it's hard for me to kind of think around that. So of course you know the famous midrashic statement in the Mishnah, right, in the Oral Torah of of Tractate Sanhedrin, right, is that when God says that to Cain. What God means is, you know, you killed Abel and now his blood and the blood of all the future generations, you know, that um, would ever have come from him that now can't come from him. It's now, you know, basically spilled all over the ground. It's crying out from the ground. So that's where my mind goes to. Um, but I wonder if that use of the word damim, kind of in a modern mitrashic sense, is another way of saying not so much that that's about the blood of Abel's descendants crying out who will never get to be born, but that it's really um, about um, the blood of anyone who is the spiritual descendant of Abel um, whose blood cries out, right? It isn't just Abel's blood, right? After Abel, anyone who was victimized, brutalized by another human being, the way that Abel was brutalized by Cain, that person's blood, that nation's blood, you know, that people's blood is also crying out from the ground. That's maybe one way in which we can understand that use of the word dam, blood, in the in the plural. So what do we think? There's the scene, obviously, where he, after the murder and where the murder occurs, but the famous thing is that we never hear what they say together to each other in the field that prompts sort of the violent uh, outburst. Do you have an idea or do you sort of see something as having warranted this kind of reaction? Yeah, so of course we have all these midrashic explanations for that. Uh, what my middle schoolers who I, in, at the Jew, local Jewish day school where I work, um, you know, that they call the, um, they call it the ellipsis or the dot, dot, dot story, right? Mm-hmm. Like what happens in the space between, you know, where the dots are, right? And so we've been doing a lot of creative stuff around that lately in the class that I teach them. And, you know, it's funny, you know, um, again, I, I know way too well some of the stuff that the early Midrashic, um, you know, commentators, the early Midrashim say about what Cain said to Abel, right? What do you sort of, what's the backstory to fill in? But the other day I was thinking about this, um, that, you know, one of the things that Cain and Abel never actually have a conversation about Midrashically, they have conversations about existential despair. They have conversations about fighting over sexual conquest, over religious conquest, over property, and you know we we would call sort of you know own you know ownership of real you know sort of you know real property versus movable property, all those other kinds of things. Is it occurred to me the other day that one of the stories, one of the backstories that we never see there is their argument over politics, right? Their argument over who gets to be the ruler, right? Or their argument over um, who has the best ideas about ruling, right? And and it's just interesting to me that, you know, that the rabbis of ancient times never came up with that as one of the possible backstories, or it's nothing I've ever seen, 
And I do wonder if maybe we could think about that as one of the backstories that sort of fills in the gap uh, to try to understand what Cain and Abel were really talking about in the field before he murdered him. And so, in a sense, midrashically, the act becomes not an act of religious violence or violence around sex and romance or economic violence. Um, so all of those basically intersect in some respect. It becomes really a story about political violence. So maybe this is answered in that um, what do we think Cain's sin was, or what do we think? I mean, obviously there's murder, so that's fair. We can we can accept that. But do we think that the punishment that he receives, right, that he is he's cursed and his children are cursed, and there's a whole big curse that's going on with this murder, which seems to actually maybe even more than he deserved uh, in a strange way. So what do we think the sin was, or what do we think were there multiple aspects of the sin? Was it just the murder itself that warranted this because it's the first quote unquote you know quote unquote first murder? Uh-huh. Right, right. Yeah, that's a hard one. I wonder if, well, let me sort of let, let me, in, in response to your question, let me posit this. Clearly, um, you know, Cain's, you know, crime of passion. It's interesting because, of course, the Hebrew word about, you know, that's used there for Cain killing, um, you know, for Cain killing his brother is not by Yitzhak. He murdered him, right, with premeditated murder. So it's by Yairog, right? He sort of, you know, up and did it because he was just so filled with all of this rage and this passion. Maybe the, as it were, sort of the the medicine, right? We know what the sin was, right? We, you know, the the it, it's it's the killing, right? You don't go ahead and take your brother's life, um, but maybe the deeper sin, right? The thing that kind of forms the substratum to that act of brutality, that act of violence, um, is one that he listens to chatat, he listens to sin, right? He succumbs to sin, sin jumps him, right? And, uh, you know, basically sort of knows how to manipulate his worst, his deepest, his nastiest impulses. And the other part of it, of course, is that ultimately, you know, he's not even able to take responsibility for that. Um, And so that is almost sort of the bigger dimension of the sin of the killing, which is horrible enough, which is that when God says, where's your brother? He says, am I his keeper? In other words, I divest myself of any responsibility, any culpability um, of anything. And so maybe that's the, that's the, as it were, the bigger sin, right? The killing yeah. is bad enough, you know? It's interesting how you, how you phrase that because to me it sounds a lot like how we talk about um, Adam and Saba or Adam and Eve when, right, she is approached by a snake, but metaphorically we, we know that the snake represents um, that thought, that, that sin, that, that, you know, the, it's about time for, for lack of a better term. I mean, it's almost like right. he, you know, and the sin of the father shall be visited upon the son. And it's the same kind of thing, right? And that's why maybe Cain's uh, children are also cursed. That there's something in these people um, that sort of is this, I don't know, not violent tendency, but tendency to allow sin to enter their lives, let's call it. Um, and that their openness to allow it to, to emotionally manipulate them into acting in this way might be right. some sort of a familial trait. Which is interesting when you think that God created these people, and yet somehow it's also, you know, so if they're a part of Him, or at least got something of Him that is still part of them, that they would have this openness towards sin. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you know. I, I so I've written about this, and and one of the things I've written about is that if you really look closely at sort of you know kind of um, if you were to sort of do a comparison of chapter three of Genesis, right, which is the garden story, right, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. And then really do a close, close comparative reading of chapter three and chapter four. I actually do this in my book on Cain and Abel. 
is you see that there is so much um, linguistic and 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 literary and and sound parallelism, and you know one conclusion you can clearly come to is that this is very much a family history. This is very much a family trait of of impulses that are constantly jumping to the surface, and these humans you know are warned by God you know in a way that almost makes you think that they're already quite familiar with chatat with sin right. God doesn't have to introduce sin to Cain. Sin is just there. Right. Sin is just there. And God says, watch it. Sin is a crouching demon who's going to jump you. And looking at those two chapters closely, we can draw some very interesting conclusions about what you said before, which is here is a family dynamic that is not one generation old. It is more than one generation old. And we and we need to we need to look at that very carefully. Yeah. And it's it's interesting when you consider the way we um, if you're taking like an adolescent development course, the way we consider adolescent development in terms of impulse control and understanding mm-hmm. consequences down the line, right? That adolescents don't really have that. And, and there's almost this uh, implication here that, that these humans, even though they're quote unquote adults, but they're really adolescents in some manner that they, they're new to the world in, in a very real mm-hmm. kind of developmental way. And it's interesting. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember ever seeing, right? Adam and Eve don't interact with their son in the Torah either, right? There's no learning. There's no mm-hmm. teaching. There's no parenthood being, uh, done between them. No, no, not at all. And remember something, you know, so all we really hear, you know, and and this is one of sort of the, the sort of the, 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 the really um, disturbing absences in the story, which forms the basis for so much thought and discussion about, you know, these, these verses of chapter four of Genesis about Cain and Abel is that, you know, here you have Adam and Eve who, you want to call God their parent, call God their parents. And these are not people who have biological familial parents, right? They're, they're basically brought out of the, they're brought into the world, you know, from the earth, from, you know, from, you know, from a bone, you know, and they really become, as it were, God's children, God's partners, God's workers until God says, goodbye, you're out of here, right? And then here they are raising these two boys. We never really see them in the stories. We see Eve, uh, you know, sort of, you know, chortling almost, you know, just, you know, sort of, you know, screaming to the heavens how pleased she is to have created, you know, to have acquired this male child, you know, um, this, this ish, you know, with, with God's help, with God's assistance, whatever that means. And then she doesn't even name Abel, who is almost nameless, right? He's, uh, to quote Bruce Springsteen, he's the nothing man. He's hevel, he's vapor, he's water, he's steam, right? He's nothing. Um, he's in and out of the story, as it were. And then they don't really show up again until verse 24, 25 of, of chapter 4 of Genesis. So, yeah, there is no learning going on here. These boys are really just alone on that killing field. And it's almost as if, you know, God has to try to desperately intervene um, out of a desperate love for both the killer and the murderer and the murdered. And Cain decides... I'm not going to listen anyway. Yeah, and what's strange is they reappear. Don't they reappear only to have another son? Right. That's that's what happens. In, right. In that, so it's even stranger because it's like, where was the break between you lost one son, but all of a sudden you just procreate and have another son? It's a very weird sort of right. um, one yeah. thing to the next, like order of operations. There was one line in your poem that that, that stood out to me in, in regards to Cain not listening, um, and yet you have it in the first stanza, which is though Cain's one thought is clearing evidence, meaning it seems to me that there's something happening in Cain's mind that damned him also. And I'm not, what is that thought? What did you think that thought was? 
Yeah, so I, what I was imagining, and I'm looking at that first uh, perfect, you know, the horror, blood, you know, brothers' blood on stones and trees. So I'm imagining Cain, he sees it, he knows he's done something wrong. Something with sort of, if you want to think about, you know, um, childhood, you know, child moral development, this is very stage one, right? You know, Boris uh, mm-hmm. Kohlberg. If he sees it, he knows he's made a mess here, and he knows he's in trouble, right? He doesn't really care about the fact that he killed Abel, right? Um, he turns away with timeless cruelty. If I were writing this now, you know, um, six or seven years later, I don't know that I would have written it exactly the same way because I've come to a more nuanced understanding of Cain's behavior and Cain's motivations. But I think what I was trying to say there is, is, you know, he's really, he's morally devoid. I mean, he's really morally devoid. Um, he knows he's got to clear the evidence because he's going to get himself in trouble somehow, some way. But there's no real sense of guilt there, no real sense of remorse. It's got to clean up the evidence. So what do you think the change now, seven years later? What, what's that nuance that you're, that you would add back in? I mean, having spent so many years researching the story and writing, you know, a book about the story, I think what I would be going for is a more nuanced sense of what Kane is really feeling. Um, you know, and, and we pick this up in that one little line in response to when God says, I'm going to exile you, where Cain says, Gadol so, right? Which can be translated, my punishment is too great to bear. In other words, you know, Cain basically says, God, this is too much. What are you going to do this to me? Don't punish me. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, but can also be understood, you know, um, in a much more ambiguous way, which is my sin is too great to bear. I realize I've done wrong here. Right? And I, I need to I need to do something about this. And that maybe what I would have done if I were writing the poem now is to look at Cain's uh, to look at Cain's motivations not simply as motivations of you know survival and self protection in light of the fact that he did something that he was afraid to get punished for, but to also look at the fact that there's a growing sense of guilt, right? That he lashes out at his brother. He decides to allow sin to jump in. He gives into his impulses, and before he knows it, the thing he really didn't want to do is now done, and the brother is laying before him lifeless on the ground. And so I think that's where I might change. I would have maybe written the poem differently six or seven years hence. Would you still choose formal poetry? It seems almost, um, I'd say, less popular nowadays. To write something in form and verse, you know, with a, yeah. with a, a complete structure. So why why the formal structure? Well, again, I mean, at the time I was learning about Villanelle form, and I happen to love Villanelle and, and sonnet form because it forces the reader to stay with the structure, and I have found it forces the writer to stay with the structure. Right? It's certainly not free verse by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I'll tell you why I like it. First of all, I, I happen to love the rhythm, all the iambic pentameter. The, the the form I think is just is a lot of fun, and it's a great way to kind of you know think about to kind of think creatively about how you develop a story using that particular rhythmic form, that metric form, you know, um, and the rhyme scheme and everything else. But there's something else, um, you know. This is a story about the first act of utter. Of, of human disorder, right? Not natural disorder, but no, it's actually the second story, right? Because the first one, of course, is is Eve and Adam, you know, eating from the tree of knowledge. You know, so here's the first one 
of of human beings getting really disordered and out of control um, in response to sin, in response to those darkest impulses, and engaging in an act of utter brutality, of of you know utter you know moral and familial chaos. And so there's something about using a very tightly controlled and restrained or restraining form to talk about that order and chaos that I really like, you know, that I really like. It's almost as if, you know, you've got this sort of this highly organized form, which is, you know, sort of, you know, very ordered, right? And it's got a whole pattern. And what is it really talking about, right? It's talking about something which is utter, utter chaos. It's bloodshed. Uh, yeah, I, I often find that when some sort of emotion overtakes that there is, right, we, we impulsively look for order or for something to impose structure upon us because yeah. we know that without it, we are lost, you know, in a, in a large sense, we are lost to the emotion itself. And so that's, right. that's in a lot of ways, religion is, is an attempt to do that or, you know, uh, right. and, and this is sort of a microcosm of that idea. Right, right. It's really... It's really about imposing order on chaos, which we know from ritual studies and those kinds of things is, you know, is very much about is sort of what, what ritual does. Right? It takes us through the different periods of our lives, the different sort of periods of the seasons and everything else. And in those sort of the what, what my teacher of blessed memory, Rabbi Neil Gilman, used to call threshold experiences. Right? That's what he used to refer to it as, is what are we doing? We're sort of crossing the line, you know, from one state into another state, and that's highly disorganizing and chaotic. And so what do we do? We have to create or restore a cosmos out of chaos, right, through ritual. And here we're doing it almost desperately, you know, through poetic ritual, right, through a certain kind of rigid poetic form. Yeah, and you have, um, speaking of trying to contain things, you do have this line about um, Cain's mark in our inheritance. And I, I was curious about that because, uh, you know, we're not technically descendants of Cain. For me, it, it right. seems right the descendants of Cain were wiped out almost in the flood. Um, right. And I wonder if there's like that connection between Cain's impulses and the people of that generation having that type of impulse. You know, there's probably some some overlap again of that familial quality there. Right. Um, but I wonder what what is our inheritance then from Cain if he doesn't really exist anymore or he didn't procreate. You know, the, his procreation didn't last through time. Right. I would ask the other question, which is, given the fact that Cain's mark is really not the mark of Cain as we understand it, right? It was a protective mark, right? Mm-hmm. Not not a mark, not a mark of guilt. You know, again, maybe that's something I would change, you know, if I were writing the poem now also. It's just, here, here's what I would say. Um, it is absolutely true that the whole line of Cain, you know, sort of, you know, post, you know, sort of post flood, right? Post Noah flood. And within the rabbinic imagination is all based up, right? We are basically the descendants of Seth, the third son, and then, of course, really of Noah, right? And sort of if we look at the Torah, those first few chapters, that's essentially what the Torah lays out for us. It's what later rabbinic tradition lays out for us. And yet, when I talk about our inheritance from Cain, um, I'm really thinking about how we are, if not in, in, in any way, if we're not the sort of, if we're not the biblical descendants of Cain, right, or the genealogical descendants of Cain, what we are is very much the spiritual descendants of Cain, right? But the story is this very important foundational story that is a story which is, you know, is very particularly our Jewish story, right? It's in our, you know, Torah. By the same token, it is very much a, you know, really a story of world wisdom 
that says, you know, if you really want to see what we are about, read this story, right? And so in that respect, we're his descendants. In other respects, we're Abel's descendants, you know, not in any genealogical sense, obviously, not even in sort of a biblical literary sense, but certainly in that sort of deeper spiritual sense, which is why the story speaks to us in the way that it does. Yeah, there is a, there is a, I've noticed a metaphorical quality to a lot of the stories, which I, you know, I think that's the way it's supposed to be, but there is this weird conundrum in the Torah where they, it, it sets up these memories that we're supposed to have and, and relate to, and yet logically they should have been erased. So for example, right, Cain could have never been put into the Torah, quote unquote, and we would have no memory of this action because we have no ancestry, you know, there's no ancestry to, right. to sort of tie it together, and yet it's put in so that we have some sort of metaphorical memory of this ancestor or at least relative, um, right. so to speak. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I always tell my students, look, you know, uh, sort of quoting Mordecai Kaplan or kind of misquoting Mordecai Kaplan, you know, that our job here is to take stories like these, you know, seriously without taking them literally. And so I don't get concerned about, well, are we really the inheritors of Cain? Because in a sense, the serious approach to the story is this is a foundational story that is telling us something about our origins, right? It's trying in, in, in brilliant mythic and, and spiritual literary form to say to us, look in the mirror and there are times when you will see Cain looking back at you. Um, and you know, for the same reason, I don't worry about, um, you know, um, converse, you know, I don't really worry about, you know, how do you explain logically um, why Cain would get worried about somebody meeting him on the road and killing him. You know, I mean, you know, uh, the rabbis are very concerned about that. And so they come up with all sorts of different explanations for what that meant. Who was Cain really afraid of? Um, to me, that's less of a concern personally, because I see the story as a skeletal story that's not there to give us complete answers. It's there to push us and harangue us about really, really good questions. Yeah, and this this might not be a good question. This might be more of a tongue-in-cheek question, I call it. But it's interesting that you have a, a subtitle, The Villain's Villanelle. And I wonder if if it's the sound that you were going for there or if, there's, or if there is something more to the villain being king um, in yeah. sort of a different way than uh, the sin. Yeah, I mean, one, it was alliterative. It was just a nice alliteration. And two is that, you know, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a purposeful mismatching. On the one hand, you know, what were villanelles? I mean, my understanding is that villanelles originally, you know, were basically sort of these lovely peasant songs that, you know, that were sort of lighthearted and they were dance songs and stuff like that. And then, of course, you know, you had people like Dylan Thomas writing very dark, dense villanelles, you know, like do not go gentle into that good night, which is a, which is a villanelle that I absolutely love. Um, and here, of course, this is a villanelle about this ancient villain. Right. You know, Cain, the villain, right? Cain, the murderer. Um, what I would I have called it that now if I was writing it six years later, you know, having done all of this, you know, thinking about the you know, about the story. Not so sure. Not so sure. But yeah. it does roll off the tongue. It does roll off the tongue. Yes, there is there is something to be said um, for the sound quality of a, of a poem, regardless of, of context or meaning. Just something about the beauty of the way a language, you know, rolls off the tongue or the way it sounds right. when you're here. Um, so I definitely appreciate that. Even if it's maybe something that um, we wouldn't have nowadays, but I appreciate that it was put in just for the sound quality at the very least. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think with yeah. the Villanelle and Dylan Thomas. I, I think also partially though that we think of, like in some ways, this is a children's story, right? Even though there's murder, we do tell it to children. And I think this sort of modern uh, aesthetic about how 
like a peasant song 200 years ago would be sort of what we think of as, as, as children's literature or something simple is not true, right? When you read the original um, fairy tales, like the grim stories, they're very, very violent by today's standards, yeah. yet they were definitely told to eight-year-old, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old children on a regular basis. Right. Um, right. So it's right. interesting how right. they change. Well, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, per- perhaps the um, the analogy cannot be drawn, but let me draw it anyway. Um, it's kind of like Bugs Bunny, right? Was it really for kids? No. <laughs> it really yeah. Wasn't. Right. Right. Its stories are very dark and often very violent and and really, you know, and really rude. So, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, here you even have sort of, you know, you know, kid stories of 200, 300 years ago in Villanelle songs or whatever, which are really adult stories. They're really adult stories, sort of, you know, maybe shaped up to look like or sound like or feel like something for kids. But there's more to it than that. Yeah, I remember learning this for the first time that Ring Around the Rosie was about the play, and it, it really yeah. changes the context in which you think of that. You know, it's impossible not to. I I stopped saying I stopped singing that ever since I found out where it's from. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty horrible. It's pretty horrible. Yeah, it's a very strange. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You you are teaching this, you said, to to children. So do they do they see it as, as a problematic story, or do they recoil, or, or how do they kind of react to this act and sort of this introduction of murder? Or is it, I mean, I don't know if it's the first time they're hearing of murder in their lives, but this is sort of yeah. uh, has a, a bigger weight to it because it is our history, so to speak. Right, right. So I'll tell you, that's a really interesting pedagogic question. When I'm teaching it to kids, I mean, again, you know, I've now taught this story thousands of times to lots of different people, you know, uh, mostly adults, but plenty of kids as well. You know, the middle schoolers that I teach this to, it, the, the matter of the introduction to murder isn't the issue. The matter of what, what's really the big issue for them is that it's almost as if the murder piece is, is kind of a, you know, it's the, it, it's a tragic sort of, it's the tragic aftermath, right? Almost, almost the afterthought to the really important part of the story, which is that here are these two siblings who don't get along because of favoritism. That's what bothers them, right? That's what's really bothering them. And so when I ask them to do sort of midrashic reconstructions of the story, um, you know, that's the focus, right? They'll write a little skit that sort of like fills in the backstory of, you know, of what it came, say, to Abel. And it's all about how daddy likes you more and mommy took this away from me because that's the stuff that's going on in their own lives, you know. And so, you know, broadening the context to sort of the bigger concerns about, forgiveness and, you know, and killing and, and victimization and those kinds of things, you know, sort of, you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, the, the first family of the world, you know, sort of writ large, you know, or writ globally, those are not their issues. Their issues are they see this and they see they, you know, they, they see their own sort of, you know, their own, um, their own stuff in their own families, you know, in this very basic story, very brutal story. You know, about, you know, a family where there's, you know, where there's sibling rivalry, you know, not that they're running around killing each other in their own families, right? But that, you know, but we all know, you know, really people like Bruno Bettelheim, you know, the uses of enchantment, you know, and sort of the sort of the way in which, you know, stories sort of, you know, help us to kind of really work through the darker stuff inside of ourselves. You know, uh, they're kids living in families. And so, you know, like all of us, you know, they have those feelings. Yeah, it sort of gives credence to, to your earlier point about this being a bones kind of story where it's, it's, it allows you to infuse, you know, space allows you to infuse your own 
experience into um, into the story itself, and that time and age and experience changes the way we look at it, and you know would have maybe even changed the way you formulated the poem itself. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, we you know we grow with our stories, right? As we grow, we grow with our stories, and so you know, I'm uh, I'm happy to say that I would probably you know write this poem differently now, only because my own experience has sort of, you know, changed me and grown me, not just my writing experience, um, but just my experience as a parent, as a rabbi, you know, as a, you know, as a husband, as an adult, you know, um, is that, you know, you come to see yourself and your, and the world and, and these stories that both reflect and inform your reality differently over time. You know, when I use, you know, in that sort of, in that, that fifth care set, um, you know, the the sort of the locus of the story you had asked me at the very beginning you know sort of you know what was I thinking what that motivated me to write the story um, the the fifth terrace that starts now in the fall the ready maple trees recall Cain's mark in our inheritance um, you know um, we, we always put things into our writing um, of which we are not necessarily conscious you know until much much later right. Um, I, I suspect we all do that. And then, of course, that's part of the, the beauty of literary interpretation. You know, um, the fall here, right, um, I realized sort of, you know, kind of um, in retrospect was my way of also kind of thinking about, you know, that old, um, you know, what is it? It's that, it, it's that old, um, you know, uh, Puritan, um, 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 you know, guide to teaching children how to read. You know, the, the way that they explain A, A is for Adam. You know, in Adam's fall, we sin it all, right? And it's New England primer. That's it, right? And and I think that that was probably playing in my head, right? That that New England primer line, in Adam's fall, we sin it all, right? And so the fall here is, in some respects, the kind of the classic, you know, fall of man. Now, obviously, that's much more, that kind of touches more Christologically, you know, and of course, this is a Jewish writer writing a Jewish poem, but... Looking back, um, I think that that's sort of what I was going for, even if I wasn't completely conscious of the fact that that's what I was trying to say, right? Now, in the fall, right, this isn't just the fall because of the autumn, right? Here's, you know, this is the fall. This is, you know, this whole story is about, you know, Adam falling and, 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 and humanity falling because of its, you know, it's getting into, it's getting into sin. Thank you for listening to Exit Jesus. If you enjoyed, please feel free to share, rate, and subscribe. Check out jewishliteraryjournal.com for more. See you again next time.